the singing of uh, singing of redemption from one generation to the next. As you sit there and you think that someday these kids will be here and there will be more kids hopefully doing the exact same thing. It reminds us of why we're here. To glorify Christ. But to praise Him propagate that glory and that praise through the generations that will come one after the other till Christ comes again. If you open up in your Bibles this morning, and I will apologize at the outset, I've battled a cold most of the week. Uh, I'm hoping my voice holds out, but if I have to drink a few more times or use a cough drop, uh, I, I apologize, but I'm praying that the Lord will sustain my voice throughout. Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. We'll pick up in verse 25 with a well-known story this morning, but we're picking up and, and finishing out what will be the last section in a series of sermons that Tanner has been preaching through called The Kingdom Mindset. Although it may seem a little curious how the parable of the Good Samaritan really falls into that, I pray that we will see as we go through that it falls very squarely into that. And in fact, is really the reason that Jesus tells the parable at all. So if you'll open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, verses 25. This is on page 869 of your pew Bibles. Read with me. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set, on him his own, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we read these passages at times that can be both so plain and so challenging. Go and do likewise. Show mercy. Love our neighbor as ourself. And yet each one of us here this morning knows that none of us will do that perfect in our lives. And yet, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see through this passage this morning that indeed striving after this is precisely how you call us to live. In your kingdom. That your spirit would move amongst us here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. <clears throat> a few years ago, Tara and I and our kids and my mom were blessed with the rather unexpected opportunity to take a very spur-of-the-moment trip to the Netherlands. We had an amazing deal fall in our laps, but only about three weeks to plan, and so booking things that needed to be done well in advance was really off the table. But there was one tour that Tara really felt we simply had to do from the outset, and it was the Corey Ten Boom house in a town that neighbored Amsterdam. A house where many of you know Corey Ten Boom, a Dutch Christian woman, used her family watch shop and upstairs living space to provide safe harbor for some 800 Jews who were hiding from the Nazis. And the tours had to be booked well in advance, but they did hold a few spots each day for walk-up tours, and you had to line up on the street hours in advance. Our flight was scheduled to land in Amsterdam just a couple hours before the last English-speaking tour of the day. But as Tara does, she went to work. She figured out a way for us to get there. She stood in line, made friends while my mom and I and the kids went out and found some really terrible hamburgers for lunch. Um, and you could feel the excitement in the line. Uh, no one was really sure where they were going to cut off the tour, who was going to get in. But there was also an excitement in the line because many of the people there were Christians who were coming to see a place where this Christian woman had put her faith into such loving and dangerous action. We made the cut, <clears throat> we toured the house, and when we came to the room where the hiding place was, it was a hollowed out place behind a wall, accessible only by crawling through a hidden entrance in the back of a built-in bookshelf. You could feel a palpable reverence in the room. Everyone took pictures, but all the while you couldn't shake the reality that once upon a time, not that long ago, there were Jews hiding behind that wall and Nazi soldiers standing where I was taking pictures. Cord Ten Boom, her sister and her dad, would eventually be taken into custody by the Nazis and sent to concentration camps. Her dad and her sister would die there. Corey would be released by mistake just 10 days before her camp was put in the gas chamber. <clears throat> and her house, the hiding place, now serves as a place where the gospel is proclaimed multiple times every day by the tour guides after they walk you through the rooms. Cortenboom loved her neighbor, even though she didn't know, even though it would come at great cost to her and her family, because Cortenboom loved the Lord and knew that she was safe in him. So as we come to our passage this morning, the question of loving our neighbor <coughs> sort of hangs upon the text. There's a couple of questions we have to answer in the outset or to have any idea what's going on. First, who were the Samaritans, and why did the Jews hate them so much? <clears throat> the answer dates back about eight centuries. The time when the nation of Israel had been split in two. You had the northern ten tribes, it was called Israel. You had the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, called Judah. And the city of Samaria had been a capital in the region of Ephraim, the most dominant of the tribes in the northern kingdom. But in the 8th century B.C., Assyria was the superpower. They invaded Israel and wiped them out. And as was customary in warfare at the time, when an empire would conquer a nation, they would deport the majority of the inhabitants of the land they had conquered, hoping that they would just sort of dissolve into their empire and eventually lose their own identity. And the empire would backfill the land they had conquered with their own people, people who would bring the customs of the empire. <coughs> thus, when Israel defeated, thus when Israel was defeated by 
the Assyrians in 722 BC, the tribes were dispersed and the Assyrians backfilled from a collection of their own cities. The authors of 2 Kings and Ezra tell us these people came to Samaria. They intermarried with the Israelites who had remained in the land. And although they imported culture from Assyria, they received culture and religion from Israel. There was a blending of the Israelite and Assyrian cultures into an amalgamation of a Samaritan culture. <clears throat> they received the first five books of the Bible, but they denied the writings of the prophets. And so their worship became a distortion, worship of Yahweh with idolatry. <clears throat> they built a temple at Mount Gerizim, claimed it was the place Moses had designated for worship. They appointed their own high priests and they granted safe haven to Jewish lawbreakers who had been exiled. <clears throat> These were a people, though they were half-brothers and sisters, harbored deep enmity for one another. <clears throat> so as we look at this well-known parable, we're going to see a case study in the folly of wisdom and understanding Jesus had just spoken about right before. But I want us to ask ourselves, why is Luke the only one of the gospel writers to write this story? What's the point he's trying to make within the overarching narrative of his gospel? Let's look at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, I, You have answered correctly. <clears throat> do this, and you will live. Oftentimes when we come to a parable like this, something that's so well known out even by folks outside the church. It's easy to gloss over this opening and closing part of the story to, to sort of skip the setting, the questioner, the reason. But to do so here would really be to miss the entire point. In fact, it's probably why the parable is so well known outside the church because people know the story and they can reduce it to just sort of a simple, <clears throat> moralistic, love your neighbor type of message told here that the lawyer intends to test Jesus, and it's a curious word because the question seems innocent enough, but it cuts to a much deeper issue in the Jewish teaching of the day. You see, when the lawyer asks what he must do to inherit eternal life, he's really asking what he must do to enter the kingdom of God. By this time, it was believed by the Jews that when the Old Testament prophets spoke of inheriting the land, they meant participation in the salvation of the coming kingdom of God, and they believed that inheritance would come only through obedience to the law. So when the test the lawyer poses to Jesus is given, it's whether Jesus agrees with this belief. And in fact, it's this question that really governs the entire rest of the passage. So it's interesting in verse 26, the way Jesus answers, he, he follows the train of thought. He says, what's written in the law, to which the, the lawyer quotes Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, the love of Yahweh along with the love of neighbor, which Jesus affirms, and he commands him, go and do this. And then we get to the root of the problem and the reason for the parable. Because the lawyer wants one final affirmation. Likely expecting to hear from Jesus to love his family, love his friends, love his countrymen. All of which he was likely doing to some degree. And so the lawyer seeking to justify himself asks... And who's my neighbor? Jesus would answer the question with the parable, but don't miss the reason for the question because that's where the meat really is. 
the lawyer sought to justify himself. While it was great that they were in church, unfortunately you and I both know the churches around the world last week were filled with people who likely believe something very similar. People who hold some tacit belief in the existence of God, focusing mainly on his attributes they find appealing, ultimately believing that their inheritance of eternal life rests upon them, following enough rules for moral living, being a generally good person, whatever that means, clocking in at church for enough of the important services on the calendar. But the crushing reality that you and I both know is that that way of thinking is really just fanciful make-believe. It's a lie people tell themselves to feel good, to feel assured, to justify themselves. But the crushing reality that you and I also know is that that way of thinking is pervasive within the church as well. You see, we're no different today than this lawyer standing before Jesus. (coughs) Over the years, I've heard time and again of pastors, elders, church members. When they go to visit Christians... And they ask that old evangelism explosion question, if you were to die today and ask God why, and then God asks you, why should I let him into into my kingdom, what would you say? And time and again, the response is much like this lawyer. I've been a good person. I've gone to church my whole life. (coughs) I believe in God. And I know that sometimes we say those things because we get nervous or stumble. I've done it myself. But those are the wrong answers. None of those things save you. Only Christ's atoning work for your sins on the cross. Confessing that sin before him. Believing that the completed work of Christ is sufficient to redeem you from death. That it's been applied to you. That's the only way you enter Christ's kingdom. And so Jesus tells the man a parable of what that kingdom looks like. (coughs) Verse 29. Excuse me. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on by the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went on, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. When I was around Cole's age, I had to dress up like a famous author for an English class that I had in high school, believe it or not. High school age, Chris really didn't like to read all that much. This project made me actually stop and read a book. My author was Isaac Asimov. The book was Foundation. And I remember it was so good, as soon as I finished it, I wanted to read the next one and then the next. And if you've ever read of any, any of Asimov's work, you may know that he's great at surprising you with his endings, frequently by someone figuring out a way to work around the laws of the universe that he had created. It was surprising not... In a Scooby-Doo sense, it, it was, but rather in a way that made you process how such a thing could even fit into the laws of his world. 
That seems to be what Jesus is doing here. You see, at that time, it was a common pattern in Jewish literature to speak of the triad of priests and Levites and lay Jewish people. And often in stories, the lay Jewish person might shine, might do something that the priest and the Levite didn't. But we see Jesus turn that on its head here by telling of a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. So the parable starts with the robbers. And an important detail in the story is that the man had been stripped. Not because of the shame, but because one of the primary ways you could identify the nationality of a man traveling on a dangerous road like this would be by his clothing. You could look from a distance and know but with his clothes stripped and stolen. He now appeared as neither Jew nor Samaritan nor Gentile. (coughs) He was just a man who needed help. But of course, neither the priest nor the Levite offer any. And scholars have wrestled over the years of whether the priest could even risk rendering aid. The man appeared near death, and if he got within six feet of a dead man or if the man died in his care, he would have been made unclean, preventing him from providing for his family. This could be why we see the Levite approach to inspect while the priest didn't. But with no clothes and unable to speak, the Levite couldn't tell if this man fit his definition of a neighbor. If we look closely at the story, (coughs) what we see is that when the Samaritan comes, he effectively balances out how the Levite, the priest, and the robbers had left this man. We read that he binds up his wounds, treating them with oil. The Levite likely had no animal, but at a minimum he could have rendered aid. Next, he puts him on his animal and brings him to an inn, something the priest could have also done, as a priest would have certainly had a riding animal on this journey. Finally, rather than rob him and leave him for dead, he pays the innkeeper for his care out of his own pocket, probably endangering himself in the process. And so the balanced structure of this parable then, working before and after, points us to verse 33, which is the central point of it all. The robbers had robbed, the priest had moved away, (coughs) the Levite had passed, but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Verse 36, (coughs) which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Luke alone records this parable. It should always make us a bit curious when that happens. Why does Luke record it and the others don't? There may be many reasons, but it seems clear this fits well into the narrative he's telling in both his gospel and the book of Acts. You see, Luke seems to be concerned with the gospel reaching the nations, reaching the Gentiles. That's why he begins in the Jerusalem temple with a mute priest, and he ends in Rome, the center of the pagan world with the gospel being preached, unhindered. Luke is concerned to show us that the table of nations dispersed at Babel have begun to come together once more under the name of Christ. But if we remember, this section of Luke's narrative began in chapter 9, verse 51. When the time had drawn near for the Christ to begin his journey to Jerusalem, he sent messengers ahead to Samaria to make preparations for his arrival. But the Samaritans rejected him, and we read that both James and John sought to bring down fire from heaven upon Samaria for this rejection before Jesus rebuked them for it. You see, it was the people of Israel who were to call the table of nations home. 
It was they who were to be the seed that would bring about the kingdom of God. And yet, whether James and John or the lawyer in our passage, there was a vengeful selectivity even within their family over who should be included. Is that true of us? I think frequently we're left wondering at the end of these parables whether the person hearing it's actually changed. And here we get only a subtle clue as to where this man's heart is at the end. <clears throat> when Jesus asked him which of the three proved to be the neighbor, the lawyer says, the one who showed mercy. Can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. And in this subtle euphemism, the one, lawyer seems to show us how his heart struggled. <clears throat> we know that the point of the parable is to show mercy, but the point of the passage is that the lawyer, that we would be moved to a Christ-like understanding of who our neighbor is, that we would be moved to a kingdom understanding of who our neighbor is, and that we would act as if we're living in that kingdom now. Because <clears throat> you see, the point is that you love the Lord your God and in so doing pursue loving your neighbor as the Father does. As the Father loves you. Is that true of us? You see, it would have no doubt been offensive that the Samaritan was the hero of the story. But it would have been utterly unthinkable that the Samaritan would enter the kingdom of God while the priest and the Levite wouldn't. But that's what Jesus means when he says at the end, go and do likewise. He's answering the lawyer's question from the very beginning. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You must love your neighbor no matter who the neighbor is. And this way of thinking would have been revolutionary to the lawyer because you see the rabbis of Jesus' day would have taught that the priest and the Levite were correct in their actions for they believed to love your neighbor as yourself meant primarily to love the Jew. That's the more shocking element of this story for the lawyer is the world-transforming answer that Jesus gives at the end. If you wish to enter the kingdom of God, live as if you're in the kingdom of God now because, friend, the kingdom of God doesn't look much like your present kingdom. Is that true for us? Is that true for our kingdom? We know that everybody's our neighbor, and yet, everybody, the proud lawyer, the disciple, you and I, everybody has somebody who they really wish wasn't their neighbor. You may not wish to bring down fire from heaven upon them. You may not leave them for dead if you found them stricken on the street. But are you able to set aside differences and flaws? Are you able to set aside politics, racial divisions, even family strife? Are you able to set these aside and show compassion <clears throat> even when it's hard? Are you able to set these aside as God did for you, that they too might inherit the kingdom in which you now live, that they might know the salvation that you enjoy? It's interesting, you know, 
This parable almost certainly refers back to 2 Chronicles 28. To a story from Israel's history that this lawyer would have known. Back to the 8th century, to the final days, in fact, before Samaria fell to the Assyrian invaders. And it was a story about another gracious Samaritan, although this time the Samaritan was of the tribe of Ephraim, the dominant tribe of northern Israel. King Ahaz was king in Judah, and Ahaz had made Judah to commit abominations in the land. And so God gave him into the hand of the king of Syria. But joining in on that fight, jumping at the opportunity to attack their brother Judah, the northern tribes of Israel slaughtered 120,000 soldiers in one day. And the men of Israel took captive 200,000 of Judah's women and children, bringing them and the spoils they had robbed north to Israel, to the land of Ephraim, to Samaria to enslave their kinsmen. But the prophet Oded in the city of Samaria went out and confronted them in their rage and their wickedness. And it's very important that you hear his challenge. He said, Have you not sins of your own against your God? Send back your relatives. And the chief men of Ephraim were convicted They confess their sins before God, and the text is quite specific. Don't miss it. They clothed those who had been stripped. They anointed their wounds. They put them on their donkeys with the stolen goods and led them down the road to Jericho to return them to their family. See, there was a time, good lawyer, when a man in Samaria really did this for you. That is how you inherit the kingdom of God. Not because you've justified yourself or earned it. But because you've rested in the salvation of him who has brought that kingdom. Aspiring and eager to live in a manner worthy of it. Is that true of us? The other night. After our Maundy Thursday service, I read a children's book about Corey Ten Boom to Karis. And then I showed her pictures of her standing beside the hiding place from our visit to the house. And she's been both perplexed and bothered since, asking several times, how could someone be put in prison for doing the right thing? You see, it breaks the rules of how the story should go in her world. And what she'll come to understand eventually, but what we must understand now, is that loving our neighbor, living in the inaugurated kingdom may not always be easy. In fact, it may be quite difficult at times. But when we say that everybody is our neighbor... Jesus means everybody. So we should go and do likewise. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we consider what it means to love our neighbor, Lord, I pray that you would 
guard us from seeing some low level of holiness that we may achieve even on some days very well. Lord, but rather I see, I pray that you would help us to see and understand and appreciate, Lord, that we aspire to love our neighbor because you've told us to go and do likewise because you have told us, Lord, that this is what living in your kingdom looks like, the kingdom that we have received, that we are participating in the salvation that you have brought for us in Christ, not resting upon the work that we have done, but resting in the work that Christ has done. And then eagerly, obediently going forth to live in it, that we may make that love known to our neighbor, even the ones that we may wish weren't. I pray that you would charge us with that. I pray that you would encourage us to it. I pray that you would strengthen us for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.